Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuttasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Uddhangdamang Sankhang Masami being asked about karma the other few weeks ago and uh, this is a quite uh, crucial topic um, because it, it gives you a sense of the the breadth and the, of the Buddha's path it's not it's covering karma means action so the things we do say the whole kind of active activated impulse that's going on in all kinds of levels of being both from obvious manifest action, speech and physical actions down to much subtler forms of action such as the jumping up of reflexes the, you know, the activation of thought the buzzing of the mind the, the sudden surge of, of, of um, feeling and so forth we're getting activated so we really see you know, this whole experience of being plugged in, if you like, being wired, wired up how in that state we both perform a lot of actions and this tremendous activity current is running through us. And um, it's quite intense. Uh, see how busy human beings are. How difficult it is to find the sense of real, real deep ease. You know, something kind of churning or nibbling or fidgeting away <laughs> in us, you know, feeling tight or tensed or, you know, holding something, you know, having to hold something, carry something, worry about something, fend something off, improve something. All this is this is this uh, karma. Is the is this act, activity, yeah. and um, you can see that in that this is dukkha because of the the way in which you never get to an end of it, you know, by following it. People live their whole lives, don't they? You know, and then does anybody really finish? You just basically get carted off after so many years, and you know, you don't actually finish. You just the curtain falls, as it were, and the act is still going on. And so, you know, then the act, you know, a new set of players come on, but the act is still going on. That's called um, further birth or next birth. So it's this, this thing, this current goes on, you know, creating new people and new events and new scenes, you know, life after life after life. Uh, this, this dukkha, because of its its relentlessness, its restlessness, its incompleteness, 
And sometimes it's actually extremely painful. You know, it's not always actually painful. But it's, 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 it's kind of unsatisfactory and it's, it's kind of nagging way. In the, and after a while, you begin to, as you start to contemplate experience, you start to feel, hey, I'm in the grip of this. I don't have any control over this. This is, this is running through me, you know. In fact, it is me, you know, in a way. You know, I am kind of am the result of this wired-up state. Everything can kind of recognize as being one's self, one's person, is somehow an imprint of this, or the activation of this, or the things that trigger it off in this being. You know, how I get wound up, you know, or happy, or excited, or depressed, you know. Well, I'm really in this deep. Um, so that, you know, karma actually is much more than, much more full than just the sense of me doing something. It's, it's, it's kind of me, me doing being. <laughs> me doing being. Yeah. Doing myself. Yeah, this is also the karma. Um, and it, it never ends. And the self it does is not fulfilled, it's not rested, it's not complete, it's not happy. And so the Buddhist path is sometimes expressed as that which leads to the ceasing of karma. And the ceasing of karma is the ceasing of dukkha, ceasing of action, or karma, actually. And this is kind of, um, you know, seems clear, but in a way it also seems like mysterious, like, well, what, what do you, you just sit around, you know, some kind of turnip, or what? <laughs> the Buddha didn't seem to sit around like a turnip, he seemed to be out there doing stuff. And yet the Buddha is presented as someone who had ceased. Yeah. And he's, and he's, the robber Angulimala was chasing him, saying, you know, stop, monk, stop, stop running away. And the Buddha said, I'm not, I've stopped. I have stopped, I've completely stopped. Mm. I'm one who is who has completely stopped and yet walking along. So there's a much more profound understanding of really what this uh, um, karma is uh, and just purely physical manifestation of activity. There's a whole inner turbulence with it. Mm. And the other interesting feature, which I'll just read you a little bit, um, because were there karma performed in lust or passion, born of lust, conditioned by lust, arising from lust, that karma is unskillful. That karma is blameworthy, that karma has pain as its fruit, and leads to the arising of further karma. Karma does not, that karma does not lead to the cessation of karma, because whether karma performed in hatred or performed in delusion, that karma is unskillful, that karma is blameworthy, that karma has pain as fruit, that karma leads to the arising of karma, that karma does not lead to the ceasing of karma. These bhikkhus are the three conditions for the arising of karma. 
Because where there come are performed with non-lust, conditioned by non-lust arising from non-lust, that karma is, is skillful, that karma is praiseworthy, that karma has happiness as fruit, that karma leads to the ceasing of karma. That karma does not lead to the arising of karma. Because where there come are performed with non-hatred, performed with non-delusion, that karma is skillful, praiseworthy, has happiness as fruit, and leads to the ceasing of karma. That karma does not lead to the arising of karma. These monks, these bhikkhus, are the three conditions for the ceasing of karma. So, you know, what he's, seems comes across to me is he's both these unskillful roots, raga, which is a kind of fiery flame passion, often associated with sexual, but not purely sexual. The word lust is kind of slightly narrower than raga. It's a whole kind of hunger. Um, so you can have that associated with even non-sensual objects, but kind of a, the desire to consume and be like a gratification sense. And um, dosa, which is the uh, aversion, and then moha, which is delusion. Yes. So, and all of these delusion, of course, is, is a little more difficult because you know, we, we all recognize, we feel the fires of, of, uh, of uh, passion or the fires of hatred, but delusion. And this is the most difficult one because, you know, delusion, when it's deluded about delusion, <laughs> you don't really see it very clearly. That's its, that's its nature. So in a way, it's, it's considered to be the most difficult one because with the others you know or you, you know something in your nose and so it's like the Buddha is saying if you, it's the most difficult because if you like if you pick up a red hot cannonball you know it burns you know if you're deluded and you don't know you know like you could think or you, you think it's not going to hurt you and you pick it up and it still it still hurts you but you you, you, you know you have the delusion so, when some unskillful actions, when one's deluded about, you keep doing them because you don't really recognize it's causing you harm. This is much worse than ones where you get the immediate kind of feedback of, 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 of pain or suffering or blame or regret. And so, with delusion, is a kind of something that covers, um, confuses us. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, but then if you perform karma without these, then that kind of action or that kind of process leads to the ceasing of, of karma. So, you know, this is, is, is uh, interesting and, and kind of inviting because, you know, in other words, the things you can do, you can do some things, there are some things you can do, you can be active and activated in a way that leads to the end of it. So it's not like just suddenly pulling the plug out. You know, We stop by uh, sticking our heads in a plastic bag or something like that. It's just that you actually can perform skillful karma that leads to the ceasing of it. And um, so this is obviously, you know, you can see that in the external sense that uh, when we perform... Uh, it begins to give you a feeling for what karma really is about. 
Um, so it's action. You know, when we see the action that leaves a residue, action that comes from a certain, has a certain motivation to it, and it leaves a residue. Because here the Buddha is, is not saying, you know, one should perform actions uh, which are something, but think actions which are not lust, not aversion, not delusion. So there's a certain kind of clarity or non-aim, if you like, non-investment. You know, so if there's lust, there's a say, I want something out of this. Yeah. Again. And then maybe we act in that way and we get something. Um, when there's hatred, I'm, I'm gonna make, you know, I definitely want something to stop happening. Yeah. So there's an intention there, isn't there? A certain intention. Prevent, don't make that happen. Get rid of it. Yeah. Destroy it, whatever. And then we get a result from that. Mm-hmm. When it's delusion... Um, this is much more difficult to see because, of course, that's, that's the nature of delusion. But we get, a, we come from a deluded perspective and we get a deluded residue, which is a state maybe of confusion or wrong view or assumptions or fantasies or projections. Um, seeing, seeing things that aren't really there, not seeing things that are there, dwelling in, in false ideas, false assumptions about ourselves, life, other people, and so forth. And so, you know, that's the residue. So you can recognize that the, the, the karma is that which leaves residues, vipaka, and the residues. So the, the arahant is able to function in a way whereby they can act with no, without that, going to get something out of it, um, and get left with residues. So, you, know, you, you can say so you can recognise uh, what that's about because all of us can recognise we carry residues. We carry residues that are associated with what you remember for a start. You know, you can remember the uh, actions that were exciting or passionate that stay with us. Still, you know, they, sometimes you meditate and these come up in the mind. They're great exciting, passionate things one may have, have, have done or been involved with. You know. Or the, the things that one feels, still feels some bitterness or grudge about. Or then the perplexity, so the memories of, of you know, did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? What, what was that about? Um, why am I like, you know, it's kind of deluded, confused states that you can get into. You know. Um, so you can begin to recognize first of all the fun residue is, is, is if you like conceptual you can remember you can, acknowledge, you can, you can think things another residue is um, emotive you feel 
emotively you feel kind of senses of sadness, uh, grief, or fearfulness coming up, or kind of some sort of heat, passion, intensity coming up. And may not, you know, often they can, you can get thoughts come along with that, but just recognizing that also there are heart residues, you know, apart from just the conceptual topics you can remember, there are also heart residues that, that, that come up for us. And then there are, there are physical results, you know, the obvious physical results of, of um, you know, um, pains in our bodies, whatever, but there are also there are the physical memory, if you like, is the somatic uh, sense, which is if you're kind of slightly tense or uh, you have, um, in your body, you have bodily tension, you have blocked areas in the body which is quite tight or um, delicate or um, things of this nature. So you get this, what's called tissue memory. Um, so the, this karma manifests and leaves residues in these three bases um, of the thinking mind, the emotive sense being affected, and then this physical or somatic sense. This is um, Vajisankara, is the the conceptual Chitta Sankara, the emotive, and Kaya Sankara, the bodily. And Sankara are called the karma formations or the karma formulations. These are these are the actual um, um, very energies, dynamics of karma. You know, see, karma is action. This is this is, if you like, the the very um, energies that are involved with that. These are, if you like, the, the very dynamic core of it. It's called sankara. <clears throat> so, you know, when you get this surge comes up in the heart of, of, of panic or anxiety or something like that, this is, this is chitta sankara. It's kind of rising up like that. And there could be skillful ones and unskillful ones. Skillful ones lead to the ceasing of that, lead to the sense of of satisfaction or gladness or joy or comfort or where the heart just feels bright and is, is rested. Um, these to the so in with that state, it's no longer, um, you know, carrying um, uh, residues. It seems feels quite empty and open. So in meditation, we can, we can bring around this particular result. Um, you might also so this is jitta sankara. Mm-hmm. So you can experience that meditation. And meditation itself, there are different words for that. The English word meditation is not particularly useful because it often associates with thinking or sustained thinking or almost only occurs up in the head, which isn't. But actually, one of the, one of the phrases that are used in, in, in Buddhism are bhavana, which means cultivation, which is a much more full-on kind of, not just thinking something through, but actually getting your hands in there, giving it time, letting it grow, letting it ripen, tilling the ground. You know, these are all useful metaphors for, for practice. Things you prepare, things you seed, things that you have to give time to sprout, things you prune, things you let grow, so forth. The sort of, is much more um, 
complete, and just what the word meditation means. Another useful word is kamatana, which means making a foundation through karma, through action. You know, so that one's actions, in other words, rather than just thinking, so it means really committing yourself, doing it, walking your talk, if you like. Um, so, um, you know, we say when we, we practice kamatana, it means we're actually cultivating karma or developing karma towards the ceasing of karma. And this means it suddenly opens the whole field of spiritual practice up from, you know, some kind of thing we do for half an hour up in our heads to the whole way of, of living, you know. And you, and you begin to, as you, as, you, as you do develop this, you begin to see which are the most meaningful forms of kamatana, of, what, of working on karma, of purifying karma, of developing karma, so that the, the residues are not there. And it's laying down residues. Mm. And this is really helpful to, to recollect this, because um, very often the, one of the problems comes up with for meditators is that, you know, we, we do sort of sitting, walking, standing, meditation, you know, quite closed in, if you like, and this is, this is always going to be, I feel, really an important part of the practice of Kamatana. It's our refuge place, it's our place of, of really uh, of, um, recollecting and coming to terms with touching in you know, in a very uh, clear and, uh, or as clear as we can get, but certainly a sort of intimate and still way, and this is very important. But of course, then, then you know, we come out of that and we start doing things. And this is there that people always find most, most challenging. And there's no point in just saying, well, you know, meditate, and then the rest of it's just the bits you do in between, because you, you really got to, one has got to grow out of that, otherwise... You know, we don't really take on um, the the non-meditation bits of our life as being of much significance or value, uh, and then you can kind of do all kinds of deluded, funny, weird things <laughs> outside of that, without really even knowing you're doing it. You know, because of course, then you know, once you come out of meditation, then. You, you, you're held in a particular form, watching the breath or practicing metta or whatever it was. You're held in a particular form, which is kind of impersonal. It's like, well, you know, this is what you do. You, you, what, the breath is not, it's intimate, but it's not a personality experience. So, okay. And you're doing it with a certain discipline for an hour or every day in the monastery, you know, come rain, come shine, whatever it is, we keep a sense of regularity to it. So it's not just what I fancy doing. Um, it's, it's kind of, you know, it, it's sort of anonymous, if you like. But then when we come into a into normal period, then, of course, it's me being a person. You know, I'm making choices. Um, it's my room, this is my clothes, this is uh, my day, this is my job, this is the way I speak, uh, these are my friends, this is the way I'm affected by you, and, and so forth, and I want to be with this person, not with that person. Suddenly, the whole personality experience comes right up and out, and then we are doing all kinds of stuff based upon that. And very often, people really don't have much of a a clue apart from keeping precepts and some stab at being mindful about it all. 
trying to stay roughly centered so you're not doing anything too unskillful. But the rest of it is just pretty much, you know, um, uh, higgledy piggledy kind of. And and what's not just the the actual sense impingement that comes up, but the most primary thing is the person who's doing it all. Suddenly becomes very apparent. It's got a name, an identity, a job. It's known. Yeah. So people have all sorts of feelings and assumptions about this person. So there's a whopping great residue walking round. <laughs> and very often, actually, both internally and externally, being nudged into being that residue and therefore re-engaging you know, in a whole karma process. You know, definitely encouraged to perform karma uh, from being from a particular viewpoint, a particular person and that, that is uh, aimed at certain uh, results um, to, be, to actually rec- ask to lay down some residues, do something, get something done, make something work, make things well, make things happy, produce good residues. Yeah, um, and this covers goes for all of us, I'm sure, different ways. So, wow. Uh, what are we, how are we going to do about that? And so, in the larger um, field of inquiry and awakening, is into this very sense of of person. The Buddha said, you know. Uh, his first noble truth birth is dukkha aging is dukkha death is dukkha sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair are dukkha in brief the five aggregates are dukkha and these five aggregates are what are are the whole sense of identity this is is the nub of them this is the, the sense of identity hovers around and is crystallized and constellated out of these five aggregates the word aggregate is used to, to say that they're both agglutinous, they stick together. And essentially, there's like aggregates that are all separate bits that are glued together into a, to form a composite. So, and this is, this, is, this is what the aggregate means. It means it's kind of actually things that really are all different bits and pieces are kind of fused into something, a singularity. Um, and there are five of these, and the whole, you know, agglutinization of the whole lot brings up the sense of there being a solid, consistent, substantial person here. And in the, the, so in the, in the Buddhist practice, you say, this itself is dukkha already, you know, because this acts as the basis for karma based on delusion. Mm. Because actually, it isn't a singularity. It's at least five separate things, which themselves are momentary arising. Yeah. So, if we take this 
to be a singularity, an entity, a person, then this is, this is a delusion. And to act from that basis means one is acting. The action comes based on delusion. And when the act of delusion is actually aimed at fostering and continuing the sense of that personality, then the act is delusion, the intention is delusion, and the result is delusion, <laughs> which is painful. Because <laughs> as you probably recognize, being, being a person is painful. <laughs> it's unsatisfying sometimes. It's unsatisfying, sometimes it's painful, but actually it's, it's unsatisfying because it limits, you know, and um, it creates expectations. And as we all know, there's a sense of pain that occurs when a person passes away. We've lost them. Yeah. And then, the, uh, the, you know, and there's the pain of being a person means there's a certain sense of, of um, you know, you should be this way, you shouldn't be that way. Are you as good a person as you should be? Are you as good a person as that person? That person's a better person than you are. You're not such a good person and so forth. And just being recognized continually as, oh, you're the person who did that yesterday. <laughs> or didn't do that. You know. So, uh, this is, you know, you, you're out there. This is why it's called birth. Birth is dukkha, because you're out there as an object. And one becomes a target for, you know, expectation and so forth. Mm. So, these five kanda themselves and the perpetuation of them as an identity is, is the delusion karma and of course there can be from that you know, various forms of passion and greed I want this for me and um, you know, hatred can be based upon that so you know and, and then when, when the within this uh, experience of the five Kanda, the five Kanda are Rupa, this form, and um, there's a certain form, um, physical form, obviously, uh, feeling, a certain pleasure, pain, both associated physically and mentally, psychologically, emotionally, and um, perception, which means things are interpreted, things have meaning. Um, things have significance to us. They they arouse us. They enter us. They get us going. This is sanya. Things, you know, we recognise. This is sanya. Sankara means things are, are formulated and activated. And this is a rather no one's ever found a, one word that really covers sankara. But we'll just leave that there for the while. And and vinyana or consciousness of an object. These are the five khanda. But, so, and Buddhas have these too. You know, Buddha said, you can't say the Buddha is, is something other than the five aggregates, but also he's not, he's not the five aggregates. But there are these five aggregates, and the Buddha is certainly a form, and so forth, there are feelings going on. So, when we actually say, well, what are we supposed to do with this? Is, is five aggregates in order that we're not basing ourselves on it is to really just to, to know these and to not be activated or inclined or towards the 
the messages that come up with them, messages that are based upon uh, expectation, delusion, hatred, uh, passion, that arise with them. So this sankhara quality of the body and the thinking mind and and the heart actually keeps forming itself in this way, in these five forms. The, so when the aggregates are, are talked about, the Buddha says, talk about sankhara, which is this rather difficult word. The sankharas are the things that activate the activated. That's why they're called sankhara. They activate form, or they define or formulate form. They actually bring form into, into awareness. The sankhara energies are things that actually present form, bring it up for us. Yeah. So you can feel, say, in, the, in what kaya sankhara is, an energy arising in your experience that tells you you've got a body. Hmm? So you can feel a sense of something, warmth, tingling, pressures, something there that actually keeps presenting this. Kaya Sankara, this kind of, yeah, it says you've got a body, there's a body here, it's nudging you, it's alive, it's responsive, it's there, yeah, it's yours, it's you, that's where you are, you're in that thing, that's yours. Now, all that, you know, that's, that's the formulation. It's not just that there's a body there, but there's a body there saying, I'm yours, this is where you live, you're in here, yeah, that, that's the bit. That's the sankhara bit of it. It's it's just that quality, that kind of formulating a body. And it activates and formulates feeling in accordance with the nature of feeling. Something saying, you know, you get a particular quality of feeling, something says, oh, don't stop that, get away from that. You know, that's sankhara. It's the thing that, that, that gets going. Yeah. Or it's pleasant feeling. Oh, that was nice. It's, what's that? I'm interested in that. Where's that? That's sankhara. That's the active activity that occurs around feeling and defines feeling and attends to feeling is fascinated by feeling, is oppressed by feeling, reacts to feeling, resists feeling, doesn't want feeling. All that, that's sankara, that's karma. That's activity. You can feel it going on, you can be aware of it going on. And then um, sankara is that which determines, formulates perception. You know, how we get interpret you, a perception is like an interpretation or a significance. Something gets us going in that. Triggered. How we interpret things. You know, somebody looks at us and felt a bit hostile to me and then start, you know, things start whirring and think, maybe I did something wrong. And it determines that the very activities themselves are determined by further activities. Something saying, 
oh, you shouldn't be like that, you should be like this, don't act that way, act this way. That's sankhara. It's, it's kind of, it's engaging with its own nature and saying, more of this, less of that, this is too much, you know. And it's all, and consciousness. Hmm? It's formulating consciousness. It's, it's um, intensifying the objective world. It's making a lot out of the objective world. It's um, seeking something in the objective world. So it's the thing that gets us going when we're conscious of an object. So this is all this being wired up, being stirred, being aroused by in these five khanda, that is the sankhara. And you can feel these in these three senses, in the bodily sense, the emotive sense, and the cognitive sense. Or sometimes just one of them. Yeah. So sometimes, I, you know, myself, I get a piece of news, a piece of bad news, and uh, my mind stops thinking, don't know what I'm feeling, but there's this strange <coughs> sense in the body. Yeah. So there's like the perception has gone to the bodily base, the, the, you know, the bodily body knows something. And sometimes I don't, don't know what, what's going on, like there's something happening in the body, a sense of shock or alarm or disappointment or sadness. It can take a while before the feeling actually, you know, the emotive sense comes in. The first thing for me often is just the physical or the somatic sense. And then perhaps after that, if I've cared to stick around with that, I might actually get some thought going on it. And this can be very small things. Or apparently small things. But uh, the nature of Sankara is you can intensify around just about anything you can get wound up about. Hmm. And uh, I can, so I can see, and a lot of this is just one's wound up about it because it, it defines who you are. It becomes important, particularly. This is a very, very potent one. So I'm then working with uh, my kamatana is, is this particular role and function or this series of roles and functions that I find myself in being the senior bhikkhu here you know. I've tried to stop using the word abbot because try and get out of it that way <laughs> even though I keep rejecting this term people keep, still keep using it <laughs> Basically, because I always get these brown mineral envelopes saying to the abbot, and opening, I think, what's this about? I don't understand what this is about. Some facts, figures, circulars, requests, demands. There it is. It's yours, abbot. (laughs) Fix it. Do it. Respond to it. But I don't know anything about this. So, a while ago I decided that whoever this person was, all these letters and forms and things were addressed to, that actually it wasn't me. It was somebody perhaps who didn't live here. You know? <laughs> Readdress, return to sender, don't know this chap. You know? But <laughs> that's, the, that's the easy bit, actually. Because the, the, uh, the most difficult bit is that 
I, I actually I believe I am the abbot. <laughs> Some of you still believes I am. You know, my head keeps saying I'm not, but certainly very firmly believes I am. So that means that, that what it boils down to is everything has to work here, has to work properly. Everything has to be satisfactory here. Yeah. And I'm responsible for everything. Everything must be satisfactory here. And if it's not, something probably I haven't done right. So you know, this is my head thinks this is a total ludicrous fantasy. I must admit that emotively, that's what happens. <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't happen emotively, it just happens physically. I just get this kind of lurch in, in my gut somewhere. Of, oh, I didn't. No. I was noticing just the other day the, the monks were uh, getting, or someone's going to buy a, uh, an MP3 player, which is, which I didn't know what it was, but it's something that plays these CDs, which you know now you can get dumber talks, dumber talks on CDs, and you put in one of these things, and you can listen to dumber talks. So somebody's going, oh great, I only get one of these, you know, somebody's offered something, so I only get an MP3 player one for the monks and then one for the nuns, you know. So you can listen to Dhamma talks. No. What's that? What's that? What's happened? Oh. <coughs> oh. Literally came through. You can't teach properly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people are so desperate for some decent teachings. They go, okay, get and get an MP3 player. Thank God somebody's getting some decent teachings in this place because, you know, fundamentally you're completely inadequate and, um, you know, so, so thank goodness something's finally going to be done about it. Wow, where did that one come from? Yeah. So, you know, this is a small example. You know, somebody doesn't turn up. Oh goodness, what's wrong? Something I probably didn't, probably something I said something wrong. Or I did something wrong. Or, uh, you know, or I'm not running a good enough place. People are so dispirited that they can't turn up for something because you did not not doing it right. Even though it, very, it doesn't always come to, the, to my brain to think about it. It's I can, you know, and actually contemplate, if I stop and linger on these strange flows and tensions and resonances and feelings of ease and feelings of stress, and actually sit with them, explore them. Say, well, what do you mean? What's happening? Oh, I can get some of the script comes out of these these things. Wow, what's this? You know. Hmm. And um, so then it becomes extremely important to to work on that. Okay. Work in a way where one isn't really expecting to get it right. Uh, have it all covered, um, wanting happiness, wanting harmony, wanting Buddhism, wanting Dharma, wanting enlightenment, wanting liberation, wanting everything. <laughs> just, just, to, just to do it, you know. And then what is, what is doing it? What is that about? Well, I can recognize, finally, if I, if I contemplate and steady myself, I know what I know what tightness feels about. I know what I actually start to feel most physically what delusion is, and hate, hatred and, and lust are very easy, but to actually physically feel the power of delusion in my body, 
because the nature of delusion is is such that the brain doesn't recognize it. It says, oh, this is reasonable, this is right, this is proper, this is logical, this makes sense, you should, it isn't, they are, and so forth. It always comes out as very convincing scenarios. Even the heart doesn't necessarily recognize it because it just goes into some kind of panic, anxiety, something like that. But I find the most useful one, for myself anyway, it's going to the bodily sense. Whatever it is, this doesn't feel good. Whatever your head is saying about being on time and being right and making sure things work and being responsible and being careful and being attentive. No. No. Nice, nice script, nice idea. Nice idea, but it's not. You're coming from delusion. Because I can feel it. I can feel the tightness in the body, the pressure in the body. Hmm? And also that some aspects of delusion I really, I really um, like. Yeah. I don't exactly like, but I follow them. Yeah. One of the delusions I follow is urgent. So urgent is a sense of this energy rushes up into your head, you feel this slight tension in your head, and somewhere around the temples and the forehead, you feel this tension in your head, and then it says, right, do that, go and act. Now you're in this nicely screwed up state. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Now's the best time to do something, it says. <laughs> you know, what a crazy idea. Huh? You know, once you start to feel really unpleasant and neurotic, that's the best base for action, isn't it? We all know that. It's your duty. <laughs> it's important. It's urgent. They need you. <laughs> you know? And along with it, because of the script, is just prepared there, isn't it? If you don't do this, the world will fall apart. If you don't do this, um, dinosaurs will become extinct. If you don't do this, <laughs> and it's all there. We all know that, you know. Get these voices. The voice. <laughs> the inner tyrant voice, which says, you know, you should be responsible. You should do your duty. If I was a proper abbot, there wouldn't be this kind of thing happening. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, you get things like the Sangha. You can't, it starts to enter. You know, the Sangha want this, or for the welfare of the Sangha. Or the Buddha, or the tradition. You know, for the sake of Ajahn Chah, for the sake of the forest tradition, for the sake of purity of the Buddha Sasana. This kind of stuff. Sounds great, you know, these are not wrong concepts. These are not wrong concepts at all. But when they're charged with delusion, these are one's deadliest enemies because of the amount of unacknowledged and unexplored pain and stupidity and attachment they can cause. And so the most sacred ones are the most vicious. <laughs> because these are the ones that say, don't, don't ever question this. You know. uh, so you know your body is kind of tightening up or whatever. Say, oh, well, endure it for your welfare or something like that comes up. Yeah. And then you recognize, well, is, would it... 
the Buddha, the Arahants, are able to respond and act, but there can be that, can't there, for all of us, I'm sure, when the action and speech is just, there isn't that, you don't feel that, that sense in the body, there isn't that pulsing or throbbing or tightening or contracting or rushing, when it's just something like, you didn't even, hardly even realise you're doing it, it just happens, it just comes out, you just say what it is. There's a purity there. You just say what it is. And how when when you feel that with another person, when they just say what it is, and there's no issue, and there's no push, and there's no manipulation behind it, you feel really steady. You think, ah, it's true. It's true. You feel something stops. The agitation stops. So there can be speech and action which is void of laying down residues, which is just as it is, and void of residues. I can't imagine for the life of me, the Buddha, who seemed to be pretty active, I mean, look at all those things he said, books and books of it, he must have been nattering for hours on end. <laughs> and, you know, stomping around India, you know, restlessly, relentlessly, and, you know, laying down all these laws and talking to people and, you know, he certainly, and even his management system, Ananda would find out what, what hours the kings were supposed to come, what hours was for merchants, what hours for bhikkhus, what hours for bhikkhunis, what hours the Buddha's going to see the David as his whole kind of secretary. Or system going up, you know, when, when he was going to do what. But he wasn't going, oh my goodness, I didn't teach the kings today, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I can't imagine the Buddha saying, well, I stressed out today, I was talking all day long. Because he seems to have done a tremendous amount of it. But, you know, there's no residue. And uh, that. Because he wasn't getting wired up. So, and it wasn't, you know, seemed to be very, very, in one way, very concerned to teach the true Dhamma and that it be properly brought across and that people behave themselves and so forth for the welfare of other beings. So that, yeah, there's some sort of motivation. But that, you know, can that just happen because of purity? Just because of truth itself? Just because this is the, what is, is beautiful, you know, and right? It just happens. It's not pushed out by some person who's hanging on to results. This is something to, to consider. It's just when you, as you cultivate meditation and you, you're able to feel more, more deeply, more fully into the whole experience of the aggregates, and particularly this kind of the dynamic in it, <laughs> activation, the sankara thing that, that charges them all up, that makes perception so poignant and stirring and despairing and <laughs> so forth. And you feel those. In Kenyan meditation, we just one that acknowledges and releases, or samatha, which actually helps to protect you from getting wound up and it helps the discharge, which is the, the sum of the practices, the practices of calming the body, refreshing the body, calming the heart, refreshing the heart. Mm. 
then also within that, as you start to know what you're what you're working with, that you're actually handling this very sankara quality itself, then this is the this is the then the place for insight, which is as you come into activity and contact and speech and thought, just where what's happening right there. What's happening when you move? What's happening when you think? What's happening? Is that the right place? Where's the pressure in that? Where's the defense in that? Where's the expectation in that? Who are we, t- who are we talking to? What's the fear there or the wanting there? You know? So, place of insight is just to be right at the edge of contact and not falling into these patterns of projection, expectation, delusion. And really it's only it's through that experiencing that sankara in meditation and outside of it, it is really is kamatana, is working on that, how the sankara forms for you. you know, whether you find yourself always getting into kind of angry, tight, indignant states, or into grieving, sad, defended states, or you know, however, if it's simple or complex, whatever those are, or obligation patterns, these sankaras, got to do, you know, oh everybody, everything, got to work until I drop, you know, everybody else will be happy. It doesn't matter what happens to me. You know, whatever it is, the, the, the sankara pattern. You just here it is. Now it's coming up in that perception. Now it's coming up. You know, in that scenario. You know, can you just acknowledge that and not create anything out of it or start activating around it? It's the clarity. It releases itself. When there's nothing for it to go to. When there isn't something else for it to go to. Or there isn't somebody, somebody, somebody for it to refer to. So when you take away the ends, the two ends of the rope, the subject, the inferred subject and the expected object, the rope falls away. The sankara drops. This is kamatana, this is working on the very core principle of karma. It's very powerful because, of course, you know, the perceptions that sankharas hang on to can be the most deeply held ones, you know, the rights and proper and fair and important and poignancy of, of human relationships and what we want and expect and how sad we can feel over 
you know, the sorrows of other people and so on. And that sense of really wanting to make it other than the way it is. It's not, not to, you know, turn away from the world, but to turn away from that, or to be able to trust that truth is the best that we can manifest. And it manifests by itself when you let go. Anyone? Andamayang Dhammagataya Sadukadang Dadamase evening so um, while I'm away please misbehave and burn the place down <laughs> <laughs>